Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another exciting time for us here at The Learning Curve. I'm joined by Kara, my co-host, who always keeps things interesting. How are you, Kara? I'm doing all well. You know, I'm keeping keeping things interesting up here in snowy Boston. I can't complain. We had snow here in Charlottesville a couple of days ago, and it wasn't as bad as a week ago, but it's always pretty to see the mountains covered with snow. Yeah, it is, unless they're in your driveway, the mountains of snow. That's Then, then it's not pretty. One of the benefits of the neighborhood I live in, through our association fees, someone will come and shovel you the know, sidewalk for us. Yes. There you go. Keep rubbing it in because we're we the, 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 yeah, no, no, we're not, we're not tough like you folks in Boston who have to get out there and do it yourself. No, I'm really good exercise, especially because I have to get out there because the um, <clears throat> I'm sure he's not listening to this, but the gentleman that we paid in advance to shovel our driver all winter doesn't doesn't seem to remember <laughs> he's supposed to come. Oh. I'm, I'm strong. I'm getting strong with all this shoveling, you know, so watch out. Watch out when I emerge from my house after this pandemic. I'm going to have some going to have some shoveling guns. Well, speaking of getting stronger, uh, my story of the week comes from Ed Next, and it's from Naomi uh, Riley, who is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Shout out to AEI. I'm a fellow there still. And she's talking about what is taking place at exam schools. And it's a really good article. And what she basically acknowledges are two things. Uh, Number one, that exam schools have been a part of American public education for a really long time. And number two, in an era where people are trying to advance ideas about equity, uh, magnet schools, but more importantly, um, exam schools have come under fire. So, for example, she's talking about the exam schools in New York City. I have a number of friends who attended different schools, in particular Bronx Science. And, you know, for nearly 40 years, they've actually required that you take a, an assessment to get into the school. Uh, they believe if you don't have certain uh, skills, be it reading, science, math, Maybe tough just to do some work. And so people looked at the demographics and, you know, as we would know, for a host of reasons, the number of African-American, the number of Hispanic students at the schools are pretty low. Well, that's the story in New York. Well, let's go to the West Coast, uh, to San Francisco, uh, to to talk about Lowell High School. And I have a couple of good friends of mine who are graduates of Lowell High School. What's so interesting uh, that she noted is that in San Francisco, now get this, the city that loves everything that's government and public, 55% of the children who live in San Francisco go to private schools. I actually didn't know that. I didn't wow. know it was that high. 55%, one of the highest in the country. I know, in fact, because I know used to work for a superintendent who later became the superintendent of, of San Francisco, that the city itself is less than 20% black, but the majority of the children who are going to their schools are black and brown. And so pretty much if you can, you either move out to the suburbs or you go another place. So she talks about... Uh, San Francisco. She also talked about Thomas Jefferson in my uh, Commonwealth of Virginia in Fairfax. But it's a really good article. She's taking pretty good uh, data and leads from uh, Checker Finn and the work that he's done on a book about exam schools. But it's worth the read because I think it exposes the class dynamic of school reform that we often overlook. And in New York City, where the majority of the students, in fact, are Asian, the assumption is they're all wealthy. And in fact, uh, at least half of those students qualify for free or reduced price lunch. 
Yeah, let's not buy into that myth. I'm I'm really surprised to hear that about San Francisco. And and folks can yell at me later if I'm wrong about this, but I would imagine that Boston, here home to several really great exam schools, is the same way. And as you well know, we've talked about it before on this program. They've come under similar fire, etc. You know, one of the things that always gets me is I think that it's so clear that um, that wealthy folks who live within city limits where exam schools are, and I don't care what city you're in, Mm -hmm. um, often take advantage of the system by, say, sending their kids to elite private elementary schools, like, you know, that, and then it's like, oh yeah, but when I get to high school, they can get into Boston Latin or they can get into, and it's just such a, um, and these are usually, you know, the same people who think that school choice is horrific and, and how, how dare we, (laughs) how dare we talk about private school choice or charter schools or something like that. And I'm always thinking, you know, um, why don't we, why don't we say, uh, to apply to an exam school, you have to have been in the city schools um, K to 12, K to eight or, or K to six okay. or, or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. now I don't know that that would fly or be legal or anything like that, but you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, this debate between, is it, should they even have admission standards? And then there's the question in my mind of like, well, so what happens to a selective school? It's like, say, it's like telling in some respect, private schools that participate in private school choice programs that they can't have admission standards we, and or should mm-hmm. you have admission standards, but make sure that you keep uh, certain, you adhere to certain demographic guidelines. Like you have to make sure certain, you know, you have a, a certain demographic makeup, or could we just say you don't get to game the system and spend 50 K a year on an elite elementary school and then crowd out all of the kids that didn't have hmm. the opportunity to choose their elementary school. Um, point. that's my two cents. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm well, sure. I'm- our listeners can tell me how how flawed that plan is, but and I'm glad you mentioned Boston because that's the other city uh, that Naomi referenced in the study, and a lot of good things going on in your city. The one thing that I just find so interesting is the race dynamic. Yes, black and brown traditionally a part of our conversation, uh, but as I said in an, an op-ed I published some years ago with uh, Brookings that. You know, the largest achievement gap when we're really talking about uh, the top level isn't black or white or black and brown. It's Asian and white. And when these schools find themselves majority Asian, it raises some very interesting questions. And I just think we're overlooking some racial aspects that have nothing to do with black and brown. But yeah. that's my story. Yeah, I love it. That's a good one. And, and thanks to Naomi um, Riley for that story. It's a, it's I was I read that this morning. Um, okay, my friend. So we've got one here too from a friend of this podcast, Lance Azumi. He's writing in the Times of San Diego today. It's an opinion piece um, entitled "Under Biden Administration, Charter Schools Face Threats at Multiple Levels." And I'm glad we get an opportunity to talk about charters again because, you know, I think I, I was thinking about this. It, it seems like we all know that there's been some. There's definitely a threat against charter schools has been for a while. I mean, always since the inception, but we had, we had a a good decade or so. And these past few years have felt really like, oh man, uh, we got to watch it. Charters are really on the rails, but it's been this sort of vague threat. And there's been this sort of vague conversation, like this administration's not going to be good for charters. And in this article, Lance really lays out what what he sees as the threats that we need to be on the lookout for. And I think it's really important to point out that, you know, it's not like it's really in the states, of course, where things happen. But at the federal level, we had, you know, President Bush, President Obama, both, you know, really 
doing good things for charters in terms of like you think about under Obama and race to the top, that really helped a lot of states establish and expand high quality uh, charter schools. Now, Mm -hmm. this last administration, supportive of charters, but not necessarily proactive in the same way as others were left a lot to the states. But, you know, when you leave a lot to the states, like proceed with caution, because as Lance outlines, you know, it's like uh, 55 ways to kill charter schools. Um, And so and so how are we doing it? Well, the first is that, you know, it's, it's capping their growth, whether that means putting mm-hmm. rules on whether or not they can expand or whether or not they can exist. I would like to point out too, that really, um, a couple interesting studies coming out about how difficult it is, um, when we have charter, uh, pro- the processes by which you apply for a charter school, how, how difficult it can be often for leaders of color to start charter schools because of the mm-hmm. processes in place. Um, and then there's also, you know, just regulation as we know, regulation kills all things, but what kinds of regulation. And it's like school boards who, by the way, shouldn't be authoring charter schools. Let's just say that again and again and again, but in too many places they do. School boards putting all of these restrictions and regulations and saying like they have to be able to vote so that charters can even exist. So that's, um, you know, another good way to kill charter schools. And, you know, it, beyond that, it's just putting regulations in place that will make charter schools indistinct from public schools. It's taking them off of common enrollment systems so that it makes it much harder for mm-hmm. parents to even know they exist, which mm-hmm. is sneaky and horrible mm-hmm. and terrible for families. Let's just say that. So I yep. really appreciated this article, Gerard, because it took and articulated really specifically what the threats are at this moment. And, and one thing I will say it got me thinking about was, you know, there's been this I think for a long time, probably since the inception, this hesitancy on the part of those who like charters to to associate themselves with anything having to do with private school choice. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. whether you like it or not, you know, this certainly this administration is not going to be a, a supportive of private school choice. But post pandemic, we're seeing a lot more private school choice bills in state legislator legislature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Far more than we are charter schools. So my question is, how can we encourage charter schools and those who advocate for them to get on in this game? Because they could be like, we've got some really interesting examples in places like, I believe, um, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. Maybe it's Arizona where, where charter schools are actually working with like micro school providers like Prenda and others. And so there are ways that charter exactly. schools can survive and thrive and expand, but that's going to mean, you know, aligning yourself with what, with what was once an uneasy alliance. So I'd love to have Nina Reese back on at some point to talk to us about what she thinks about that recommendation. But what do you think? <laughs> Um, I was first introduced to Lance's work uh, back in the 90s. Uh, I worked, of course, lived in California, but worked in the legislature during a fellowship there. And uh, he was at the uh, Pacific Research Institute, I believe that's the name. And he was really good on board uh, with charter schools and choice uh, at that time. And he's, you know, he's continued to do so. So there are a few things that come to mind for me. Uh, number one, I'm not sure that uh, Secretary De- Voss and Trump weren't as active in charters. In fact, if you look at how much money they've given, I think it actually surpassed what the previous administration had done. But a lot of charter school organizations and others did not want to affiliate with them. I get it. Um, so I guess part one. Part two, charter schools, many of the advocates decided to break away from the private school choice. And that was fine. But to attack and then try to somehow say charter schools are better um, was was a, was a problem. Or and we're so not I, them, them right? 
Yeah. I don't know. I think some of them are going to have a hard time trying to get support from people who supported Charter's choice just, you know, across the board, uh, who all of a sudden may want to call, hey, by the way, we need your support for this. I just think they're going to get a cold shoulder from some of us in the movement because of the way they chose to respond. But since we're speaking of a Naomi, um, Naomi Shelton is the new CEO yes. of the National Charter Collaborative. So she and others are going to have their work cut out for them. But, you know, this is not their first uh, rodeo as a group. But uh, good article. Um, but I think at this point, we will see if we can come back to being bipartisan on charters. I hope so. Uh, let's hope because they're so important. You know, there's so many are serving so many kids so well. And uh, if we if we really lose momentum with this reform, I think we're in trouble. But- oh, in fact, since you mentioned uh, charter schools, it's also worth noting in Naomi Riley's article that she mentioned Success Academy. Uh, in New York City, we've had their leader on here. You know, they actually have sent a number of students to the exam schools in New York City. So it can be done. There you go. There's the pipeline. You can use Success Academy and then go to the exam school. You're not yep. paying $50,000 a year for it. <laughs> yep. So amazing. Well, listen, Gerard, we've got um, a, a pretty cool guest. You know, I, we, we received a compliment from, from a friend of the show the other day saying, wow, you guys have such a wide range of, of guests on this show. And I was like, yeah, we do. We're mm-hmm. pretty cool. We're going to be talking to Professor Valerie Boyd. She is the Charlene Hunter Galt Distinguished Writer in Residence and Associate Professor of Journalism at the University of Georgia. She's also the definitive biographer of Zora Neale Hurston. Looking forward. We'll be back in a second. Learning Curve listeners, today we have with us Valerie Boyd, who is a professor of journalism and the Charlene Hunter Galt Distinguished Writer in Residence at the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia, where she founded and directs the MFA program in narrative nonfiction. She is the author of the critically acclaimed biography, Wrapped in Rainbows, The Life of Zora Neale Hurston, winner of the Southern Book Award and the American Library Association's Notable Book Award. Wrapped in Rainbows was hailed by Alice Walker as magnificent and extraordinary and by the Boston Globe as elegant and exhilarating. Formerly arts editor at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Boyd has written articles, essays, and reviews for such publications as the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Creative Nonfiction, the Oxford American Paste, Mrs. Essence, and Atlanta Magazine. Boyd is currently curating and editing a collection of Alice Walker's personal journals, which span more than 50 years. Simon & Schuster, Inc. will publish Gathering Blossoms, Under Fire, the Journals of Alice Walker in 2022. Professor Valerie Boyd, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. I have to say, I wasn't exposed to Zora Neale Hurston until I was in college and I was a a lit major. So I imagine that... um, it, you know, perhaps I was only exposed to Zora Neale Hurston because I was a lit major. And I hope that that's not the case. But, you know, we talk a lot about K to 12 education here um, on the learning curve. And it's, you know, it strikes me that Zora Neale Hurston is such an important figure in literature. And I mean, really one of the greatest black female writers in American history, um, that, that everybody should know about her. Um, so can you, can you tell us a little bit more about why Hurston is such an important novelist and cultural figure and, and shouldn't K to 12 school children know more about her? Yes. Um, so as you know, Zora Neale Hurston was the most 
published, most significant, most prolific Black woman writer of the first half of the 20th century. That sounds dramatic, but it's not overstating the case. I mean, she published seven books in her lifetime, and she was publishing these books from the 1930s through the 1940s, really. Um, And for a Black woman to have published seven books in her lifetime during the 30s and 40s uh, was really quite revolutionary. I mean, seven books is a lot. Like, I don't know if I'll publish seven books in my lifetime, you know, given my age and and how many books I've published so far. So, like, the fact that she was able to accomplish so much despite the racism and sexism in the publishing industry at that time uh, is extraordinary. And um, we really can't overstate her importance. She was also important because she gave voice to Black women uh, to their interior lives and to the the interior lives of regular rural self-educated black folk. She said, you know, these people's lives are are worth literature. Their their language is poetry. You know, she really wanted to write about what she called the Negro farthest down, just regular black people and to t- to give them voice to tell their stories. And that's why her work is so important. Like you, I didn't read Hurston until I was in college. I was a first year college student. I took African American, an African American literature class. And that's when I was first exposed to Hurston. And I was kind of mad that I hadn't gotten to read her in high school. You know, I had an excellent AP English teacher in high school and we were reading James Baldwin and, you know, Alice Walker and, um, you know, even some Toni Morrison. But for some reason, we didn't read Zora Neale Hurston. So when I first read their eyes were watching God when I was a first year college student, I was just blown away by it and just amazed that somebody could have been writing literature of this sort that still spoke to me so urgently across the decades. That book was written in 1937 and and I didn't read it until the mid eighties, but I do have to say one thing I've been um, really excited to learn over the course of my going around the country speaking about Hurston is that their eyes were watching God is required reading for AP English students in the 11th grade now. So a lot of the younger generations are being exposed to Hurston. My, I teach at the university of Georgia, as you said in the, in the intro, and a lot of my students have read uh, Hurston, either their eyes were watching God or some of her short stories. Many of them have read her in high school. So that's great. That's great. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps you're asking them to read her again because they could read her again and again. You know, you mentioned their eyes were watching God, which is probably, you know, the book that most know and would associate with Zora Neale Hurston if they haven't read more of her works. Um, but such a, it, it, the impression that it makes on one, I, I would, you know, share with you feeling that first time I read it, that this is, this is so seminal. This is so important. And so just so beautifully, beautifully written, but could you tell our listeners, maybe some of whom don't know the book and should after listening to this, um, why this is the story that's really considered her masterpiece and and what was its influence on African-American and maybe we should say on American literature? Yeah. So their eyes were watching God was, uh, published in 1937. And it was, as you said, Hurston's most uh, successful and most uh, enduring book, I would say. Um, It's a novel about a woman named Janie Crawford, who is really on a journey to know herself. Um, 
and she goes through three important relationships that really help her to kind of understand herself. Um, Alice Walker has said, there's no book more important to me than this one. Uh, Oprah Winfrey has called it um, her favorite love story of all time. Mm -hmm. And I would say that Their Eyes Are Watching God is a love story. There's an epic love story between Janie and one of her her partners in this book, Tea Cake. That's a really epic love story that everybody, you know, that's really romantic and wonderful. But I would say that it's really a love story because it is the story of Janie coming to learn love herself. It's a, a story of her finding herself and loving herself, um, whether she's partnered or not. And to me, that's the greatest love story because Janie ultimately has to choose herself. And, um, it's an extraordinary book because it does give voice, a beautiful poetic voice to, um, this black woman who's a, a, a self-educated um, storyteller, and she's telling her story in a way that that really feels magical. Every time I pick up their eyes, are watching God and, and reread it, and I kind of end up rereading it every couple of years. And I don't mm-hmm. intend to reread it. I, I just intend to look something up and look at one page, or or you know, just reread a section, uh, like when I'm doing an interview or something like this, and then I end up getting so caught up in it because it's so beautifully written. It is, uh, it turns kind of black dialect into poetry and it really, you know, shows us this woman's agency and her rich interior life. Yeah, I know listening to you speak about it right now is um I I think that right after this I'm going to have to go find my copy hidden somewhere in the back right. of you know, <laughs> my books but it's time. What happened to her and you'll be in your office just just reading like you'll be reading it for a couple hours and and you'll come out refreshed. That sounds good. It's a good way to spend a pandemic, I think. Exactly. So, <laughs> so so that's you know, Hurston, the author, um, but you've, you've written about Hurston, the woman, and she was uh, the perhaps central female figure of the Harlem Renaissance. So can you tell us a little bit more about her and her experience as a black woman in New York in the twenties and maybe a little bit about the, you know, her relationship to other leading authors at that time? Right. So the Harlem Renaissance was this flowering of, uh, black intellectual, uh, thought and energy and creativity in the 1920s that took place in Harlem, New York. And um, you've heard of people like Langston Hughes, County Cullen, um, you know, uh, Bruce Nugent, Wallace Thurman, um, Nella Larson. There was just this really rich community of writers. And then you had, um, you know, actors and musicians like Ethel Waters and Duke Ellington and all these other folks who were part of this great flowering of black culture and arts. And Zora Neale Hurston was a part of that and was really, um, she sometimes was referred to or sometimes referred to herself as the queen of the Harlem Renaissance. And she was known for being uh, a great uh, storyteller and entertainer. I mean, in terms of just entertaining people at parties and hanging out and just a real figure of the Harlem Renaissance. And she was also at that time really developing her chops as a writer. She was writing short stories. 
she and Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman and Bruce Nugent and some of her other writer friends put together a magazine called Fire that was published in 1928. Um, so you had this group of people uh, really starting, you know, like developing a community, uh, a community, a creative community of uh, writers and artists and musicians and thinkers who were just um, supporting each other and, you know, kicking around smart ideas. And really, you see those ideas blossoming later in their work. Herson's first novel was not published until 1934. It was her novel about her her parents really called Jonas Gordvine. It was a tribute to her parents in the small town of Eatonville, Florida, where she was born and grew, where she grew up. Actually, she wasn't born there, but she grew up there since she was a toddler. So it was always her home place. And Eatonville was this all black town as one of the nation's first incorporated black communities. So it was special in that Hurston never, um, she didn't grow up in a segregated kind of, uh, community where she was looked down upon. She grew up in this all black town where she saw examples of black achievement all around her. You know, her father was the mayor in town for a while. Her mother was a Sunday school teacher and seamstress in the community. So Hurston grew up with this example of black achievement and was really never indoctrinated in inferiority. So when she came to Harlem in the 1920s, here was this kind of mecca of black creativity and she just fit right in and really became uh, a leading light of that great movement. At the time they called it the new Negro movement. We now look back on it and call it the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but for her, it was just this time of, of really kind of meeting a community of peers and a community of creatives who could help to nurture her, her thoughts, her thinking and her work. And she, in turn, nurtured theirs. Dr. Boyd, this is Gerard. So good to have you on the phone with us. Thank you, Gerard. Good to be here. Um, like you and Kara, I was actually introduced to uh, Zora Neale Hurston in college. Uh, I attended Howard University where she was a student uh, some years ago. And it wasn't in a literature class or a history class. It was actually a class uh, for anthropology. And uh, she, we talked about her work, and particularly uh, folk culture and field work. So uh, all of us come to her in different ways. And I'm glad you talked about Florida, uh, particularly Eatonville. As you mentioned, her mother and father were important influences on her life. Her you know, uh, father was a carpenter, sharecropper, and Baptist preacher, and her mother was a school teacher. And as you mentioned, it was one of the first incorporated uh, Black cities in the U.S., Go a little further in talking about how her family and her experience there shaped her views on race, religion, and politics in America. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I want to just emphasize that Eatonville was an all-Black community. It was a community founded and, um, you know, governed by Black people. And as we both mentioned, her father was a mayor in town for a while. He was also a minister. He uh, owned his own farm. Uh, you know, he had, um, I mean, you know, they were kind of, they were middle class by, you know, by the standards of the day. Um, and so, but there were all kinds of people in Eatonville, right? I mean, Eatonville was this black community, this black town that had a range of people that the Hurston family was rather well-to-do in that community at that time. Um, and it was a community where people of all economic 
um, levels live together and mingle together. And so Hurston witnessed that. She witnessed that kind of, um, you know, um, egalitarian mindset among black people of different um, levels of privilege. Um, you know, the school teachers and the ministers uh, mixed with the the day laborers, right? Like there was this kind of uh, community that was built on a shared sense of of blackness and a shared sense of uh, responsibility for the town. Um, and so the main thing about Eatonville for Hurston was, as I said, she was never indoctrinated in inferiority. There was no white government or white gaze that was ruling uh, the people of Eatonville. They were free when they, even if they worked outside of Eatonville in Orlando, Florida, which was nearby, or if they, you know, even if they worked somewhere else, they came home to an all black town where they could be free to be themselves. Um, I want to, there's a little section from their eyes were watching God. Um, that I want to read that kind of says that I absolutely she, she talks about, you know, people coming home, being at home, sitting on their porches at the end of the day. Um, and I'm just, it's just two sentences. She says it was the time for sitting on porches beside the road. It was the time to hear things and talk. These sitters have been tongueless, earless, eyeless conveniences all day long. Mules and other brutes had occupied their skins, but now the sun and the boss man were gone. So the skins felt powerful and human. They became lords of sounds and lesser things. They passed nations through their mouths. So it's this sense of powerfulness, you know, that, you know, they were free in this town. And so that impacted Hurston's view on everything, you know, to be able to see Black people being free, and, and we can't emphasize enough how few Black Americans get that experience, you know? Even if uh, we think think about our grandparents or somebody who might have grown up in segregated times, um, there was still a lot of, um, there was just the white gaze that was always kind of ruling your life, but in a small Black town, they were free of this. And so I think that's what that quote that I just read emphasizes, and also, um, that was just Hurston's way of being in the world. So she, you know, she never uh, saw herself as inferior, you know, and um, in her famous essay, How It Feels to Be Colored Me, she says, you know, she doesn't, you know, when she comes across discrimination, it astonishes her. She said, how can these people deny themselves the pleasure of my company? I mean, if she was serious, it's like, I'm a great person. If they can't sit next to me because I'm black. That's that's really their loss. It was so good for you to emphasize again that in 1887, it was a black town. And this is post-compromise of 1877. Uh, this is the rise of all kind of aspects of American hate, uh, Ku Klux Klan and otherwise. But to hear someone say she grew up without basically the stamp of inferiority is uh, something almost unthought of in, in American life. And the fact that, you know, what, 100 years ago is when we had uh, uh, the bombing in Tulsa of the black community known as Black Wall Street. So it's always good for our listeners to know things like this. And thank you for reading that as well. Let me shift because it goes to something else about Southern 
life. Your 2003 biography featured the first published excerpts of uh, Hurston's book, uh, Barker Room, uh, the story of the last black Congo. First published in 2018, the book is drawn from Houston's 1927 interview with 86-year-old Cujo Lewis, a survivor of the Clotilda, uh, the last slave ship known to have made the transatlantic journey that carried 160 Africans to Alabama in 1860. This was 52 years after the country had abolished the slave trade. Could you discuss uh, Barracoon's uh, importance as primary source in understanding the slave trade and the Black experience? Yeah, so Barracoon is amazing because it's... Uh, it was unpublished for many years. It was actually the first book that Hurston wrote, but she never published it in her lifetime because publishers were interested in it, but they couldn't stand the dialect in it. They wanted it to be written in what they call English rather than dialect, as if the dialect itself wasn't a form of English. Um, Hurston was committed to capturing the way Cujo Lewis spoke, his real cadences, his words, his use of words. She wanted to capture his voice because she, again, saw it as poetry. And she always called him by his African name, Kosala. And she interviewed him over, you know, multiple visits and really got him to tell his story of being one of those last survivors of the slave ship, that last slave ship, and also of helping to found this black community called Africatown near Mobile, Alabama. And Kosala is really important because the story he tells, which is now documented in Barracoon, which was just published, uh, I guess it was 2019 now, it was published, you know, so many years after Hurston wrote it because, you know, she she refused to change it. When they wanted her to change the, the language of it, she said no. And so it sat in the archive for years. And Scholars were aware of its existence, um, but her estate, which is uh, made up of her descendants, she has several nieces and nephews who now make up the Hurston estate, and they got interested in publishing it. They said, you know, this seems like this is valuable, and they started to show it to, to, to me and to other Hurston scholars, and Deborah Plant is a Hurston scholar who was asked to uh, to edit it and bring it to fruition. So it was just published. And why it's so significant is because it is that last connection with um, our African ancestors who came over on those ships full of enslaved people. It's like I, I think of Kosala as uh, as our last connection to Wakanda, so to speak. Right. Like there's an African past and an African uh, beauty and, you know, there's also challenge in his story about Africa, challenge and tragedy. But what he remembers most is the beauty of his homeland and the wrenching of being taken away from it. So he really, in his story, paints this portrait of a kind of uh, beautiful, idealistic place, kind of like Wakanda, that he was, you know, uh, forcibly removed from. And so to me, Kosala becomes like our great, 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 great grandfather. He is our link to that mm -hmm. to the past. Yeah. And to think that 1860, uh, they're still importing Africans to the United States 
and you fast forward to tw- uh, 2008, uh, the daughter of Alabama, uh, Michelle, at that time, Robinson, later Michelle Obama, uh, goes to the White House and how much uh, has changed from then till now. And we're thinking about the Alabama roots. I've got one last question for you, and this is more of a contemporary uh, thought about the moment we live in right now. Uh, it's, you know, Black History Month. Uh, we know Carter G. Woodson helped to create that. What should educators, parents, scholars, government officials, how should we really think about uh, Zora Neale Hurston's work in a larger picture of not something we just celebrate during Black History Month, but something that's a part of American culture writ large? Or do you think that may be simply impossible to do at this point? Well, I think um, the America that we are, that we have been promised and America, the America that we are now, thank goodness, moving back toward, uh, back toward that more perfect union after four years of, uh, you know, grinding backward. Um, I think that America can easily celebrate someone like Zora Neale Hurston, who was you know, really one of the greatest novelists, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, race aside. You know, her work um, stands the test of time. If you pick up their eyes are watching God and, and, I mean, any writer of any color or culture, any reader of any color or culture um, or gender can find themselves in their eyes are watching God. I remember one time I was talking about their eyes and I was talking about what a, an important book it was for, for black women and uh, for black people, but specifically for black women. And this white man in the audience raised his hand and, and he interrupted me and he said, please, I love their eyes were watching God. Please don't leave me out. And that was eye opening for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I came to understand that this book is about human beings trying to be the best versions of themselves. And it really in that way um, is not bounded by race or gender or age or any of those things that make us different. It's really a book that all kinds of people can connect to. And it's, it's, uh, it's an incredible story in that way. And also Hurston's life is an incredible story in that way too. Hurston was someone who had the courage to live the life of her dreams. And I feel that parents and, and educators want to expose our children to people like that. And Hurston was just an, a marvelous example of someone who was committed to living her life and doing her life's work of chronicling and celebrating the lives of ordinary self-educated black folk, even when it didn't pay well, which was most of the time. But this was her life's work and she remained committed to it. And she remained committed to being fully herself and being free uh, at a time when being free was... Uh, a difficult thing sometimes for a black woman to be, but her life sets that example for us. Um, and, you know, of course I write about her life in my book wrapped in rainbows. And she also writes about her own life in dust tracks on a road, her autobiography. And then you see her own, um, you know, her own characterization of a, a different kind of black woman in their eyes were watching God, who's not her, but who was also, making a life for herself and really trying to be herself and love herself. Um, despite what, um, what America might be saying to us about our, our value and our worth. It's about Hurston's work is about knowing our own value, 
and loving ourselves um, because of our intrinsic worthiness. And that's why her, her work is so important for young people to read today. Well, Professor Valerie Boyd, I thought that I was uh, at my age that I was done with school <laughs> and all my terminal degrees, but boy, I would really love to come and take a class with you. <laughs> this has been... I would love that. Let me know when you're coming to Georgia. We'll, we'll... I, I will. It's better weather in Georgia too. So it might be sooner rather than later if you can pull some strings to get me in. Um, but... And you know, Georgia's like, we saved the democracy. So we're we're a good place to visit these days. Very good point. Very good point. <laughs> An excellent place to visit. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. And I'm sure that our listeners will feel exactly the same way. And, uh, and hopefully like like you have inspired me, they too will be inspired to go back and pick up the works of Zora Nohushtan and indeed your own works, uh, whether for the first time or for the 10th time, because uh, I'm inspired to do some reading after this show. Thank you so much for spending this time with us and we wish you um, health and, and safety. And I know you probably have nice sunny weather down there. And and yes, thank you for saving the democracy, as you put it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you all. It's been fun. And we're back. My tweet of the week is from Neil McCluskey. It's from February 9th, 2021. In the right kind of education system, one in which parents control funding, children across the nation would not have their futures dangling on the word and power of a union president. And he was referring to a New York Times article about AFT President Randy Weingarten and her effort to try to get teachers back in the classroom. There we go. Yeah. I mean, drop the mic, Neil. <laughs> but there you go. That's a, that's a pretty good one. That article is an interesting one. Everybody should, uh, should give it a read. But um, I think that a lot of parents out there, whether they want to recognize it or not, looking at what the polls say about parent support. I think parent support for teachers is very different than parent support for Randy Weingarten or for teachers union, uh, teachers unions. But, um, yeah, I think he hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, so thank you, Neil. Um, Gerard, next week we will be speaking with Terry Teachout, the drama critic at the wall street journal and author of pops, a life of Louis Armstrong and Duke, a life of Duke Ellington. So listeners don't say that we don't bring you just like a variety <laughs> of topics and thinkers on this show. We might be called the learning curve because we are, we are schooling you. I'm getting schooled absolutely every week. So Gerard, take care of yourself until next week. Oh, wait, Gerard, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be hiding out next week. I was waiting for you to bring this up to the audience that your privileged life gives you an opportunity to <laughs> bypass us one week, but that's okay. I, I think we'll, we'll manage. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll be going somewhere super glamorous. Let me tell you that. No, I will. My children will be <laughs> off of school, so I will be freezing on on the ski slopes um, and unable, I'm sure, to go inside and warm up for a hot cocoa. But and there'll be a lot of mommy, mommy, mommy going. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it no no different than I hear spending um, a, a couple hours with you guys every week. But what? But you know, it's all. <laughs> <laughs> but you have very good hands, and I promise I will miss you. And uh, and you know, and we'll be back together again soon. So don't fret; it's going to be okay. 
enjoy the ski time. And as usual, let's keep everybody learning. Absolutely. Okay. Until next time, take care. 